0: Hello everybody. It is Tim. It is the Honor Roll, the first Honor Roll of the year 2022. Yeah, it's 2022. I'm correct. There. Uh so welcome. Welcome back for those who are rejoining. For anybody who is just joining, this is the Honor Roll. It's kind of like a bonus series that I do here separate from the main podcast horror movie yearbook that willie and i do this is a way for me to keep up with new horror movie releases think of it like this so i used to go to the video store all the time i used to rent five movies and then it would be a mix it wouldn't just be horror movies but it'd be all sorts of stuff and then i'd go home and i'd watch them well it wouldn't be five movies. a stack of movies is what i would rent um new releases usually go home watch them and then i decided which ones i like this is like that only new horror movies only so A stack of new releases. I'm going to go through them. I try to do about five per episode. And then uh, the ones that I really like and that I think have the potential to make my top 10 list at the end of the year, aka the Tim's list, if you will, I will put it on the honor roll. I'll pull it out and I'll put it on the honor roll to keep it separate from the rest of the movies that I like. So it's not a straightforward review style show I'm going to be doing some different stuff on here I'm also going to try to keep up with new releases this year as they come out so um, if something yeah if something is theatrical I don't know if I'll get a chance to see it until it's on VOD just because of how life is and I don't get to theater as much as I used to but once it hits VOD I will definitely make sure to watch it but I'm going to try to keep up with a lot of the new releases on VOD as they are released in 2022 so, I am also going to try to get this out on a normal schedule this year as well. I'm going to, these will hit our Patreon, patreon.com backslash Midwest You can join for a dollar a month. Uh, these will hit our Patreon. I'm going to try to get them to hit the week of our new episodes, our new main episodes, and then they will hit the main feed uh, with the tiny terror episodes the next week so that is so probably around two per month probably yeah probably gonna be 10 movies a month and yeah you can get them patreon.com backslash midwest podnet if you want these early or any of our bonus episodes or any of the midwest game nerds bonus episodes or any thing from the midwest podnet podcast network that we put out that you want a little bit early or if you don't even if you don't even want early you just want to uh, chip in a buck or two uh, you can do that. Patreon.com backslash midwestpodnet. All right. I've 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 shilled enough. Let's get started with the first movie, shall we? All right. The first movie up in 2022 is Stoker Hills. Three college students filming a horror movie find themselves trapped in their own worst nightmare. Their only hope for survival is two detectives who find the camera they left behind. Directed by Benjamin Lewis. Written by Jonah Kooner. Starring... Tony Todd, kind of Stefani Brass and David Gridley Stoker Hills. There are a lot of things that I liked about this movie. And as we get into the slasher search segment, those things will make themselves known because they mostly revolve around the slasher character itself. This movie does make some really bizarre choices in its storytelling, though. It starts off as a found footage style movie before it settles into kind of a hybrid of found footage and detective movie, slasher movie, serial killer movie. I think it's the found footage aspect That really hampered the movie early on for me, visually especially, because it makes it very tough to see what's going on during certain moments of the movie. And when you add on that, most of the movie takes place in the woods at night, you get a pretty murky movie visually. I also think it gets a little bit too cute for its own good. That found footage head fake at the beginning, like the first 15 or so minutes is a part of that. But the movie also introduces a countdown clock in the second half of it that disappears and reappears kind of randomly throughout the last like 40 or so minutes of the movie. And it's more distracting than anything else. But the big problem for me with this movie was the ending. And I'm just going to leave it at that. If you're going to watch the movie, I don't want to ruin it for you. But. It's a truly awful last 10 seconds of this movie. It's just it's mystifying stuff. And yeah, I I did not like it. But I want to get to the real reason why we're here. Introducing the slasher search. There's been a lot of talk lately about how we're in the midst of the next big slasher boom. And 2022 seems like it's shaping up to be a big year. For slashers, Scream is out right now. We have a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie out next month. Halloween Ends is later this year. Hellraiser, there's a new Final Destination movie that was just announced. Chucky, the TV series, which is excellent, will return later this year. A lot of the heavy hitters are back in 2022. But every horror fan knows that if you want to have a great slasher year, it can't just be the superstars. You've got to have a deep bench. So, like if Ghostface, Leatherface, Michael Myers are your Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, you've got to have complimentary pieces like Steve Kerr, Bill Wennington, Luke Longley. And if we're let's like take a look at one of the biggest slasher years ever in 1981, for example. You've got Michael Myers in Halloween two, Jason in Friday the 13th, part two, Harry Warden from My Bloody Valentine, Cropsy from The Burning, The Prowler. But you've also got your Cheryl Roberts from Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. You've got your Harry Rusk from Hospital Massacre. Slasher Search is going to be my attempt to find those diamonds in the rough in real time, and I've devised a helpful scoring system to help me do so. We're going to be basing it around five categories that make up a great slasher. I'm going to be looking at the slashers themselves here mostly, not just the movies, but of course there's going to be elements of both in my breakdown. So, here are the categories that I will be grading these slashers on a scale of 1 to 10. Backstory, motive, appearance or look, kills, and victims. So, some of these might seem similar, but there are some slight differences that we'll get into as we go through each of the categories. So, let's get started with the killer from Stoker Hills. Charles Moyer and big time spoiler warning from here on out. I won't spoil the ending, but I'm going to be spoiling specifics when it comes to the character itself. So if you want to watch Stoker Hills, fresh as a daisy turn back. Now I put handy dandy uh, timestamps as well. All right, let's get started with backstory. There's a lot here. So let's start from the beginning. Charles Moyer is an orphan who was discharged from the military as an adult after a mental breakdown. Following that, he went on to work on a farm outside of the city of Stoker Hills where he was involved in an accident involving farming equipment. The accident left him needing a heart transplant and he was put on a waiting list for said transplant. The problem is, he was on the bottom of that waiting list and he would die without a new heart. Enter Dr. Jonathan Brooks, a doctor who has had his license suspended for malpractice. It is known to perform experimental xenotransplantation. Ah, yes. Basically, animal to human transplant. Instead of waiting and possibly dying, our hero, Charles Moyer, Took part in this experimental surgery and was given a pig's heart. A pig's heart that his body may be rejecting and also may be giving him mental health issues. The movie does imply that it's the pig heart that is doing this, by the way. So, backstory. Anyway, this this backstory kind of rocks, honestly. Uh, It's completely ridiculous, but it's the kind of ridiculous that I like. And there's even a touch of tragedy to it all. And there's another component to this backstory that I really like, but it ties into appearance, so we'll get into that more In a minute, I'm going to give this backstory a score of an eight, though. Let's move on to motive motive. His motive is that he wants a human heart and he's kidnapping possible heart donors. I think this is a pretty decent motive, but I'm not in love with it as a slasher villain motive. I prefer when a slasher is motivated to kill people, first and foremost, whether it's for revenge or just because they want to. Moyer's motivation is centered around kidnapping first. So that kind of knocks this score down a couple of notches for me. I'm going to go with a five on motive appearance or look as far as his clothing goes. He looks very similar to the fisherman from I know what you did last summer from a distance. But as you get closer, you see that it's more of like a long coat or a jacket with a hood instead of like a fisherman's coat. The big issue here, other than it looking kind of like a ripoff, is that the movie never really gives you a great look at him until the end of it. I will say at one point near the end of the film, there is a really great shot of Charles Moyer in the basement of his lair with a victim draped in his arms and he looks kind of like a classer a classic monster villain it's it's shockingly good now well, I'm not crazy about his getup, the killer is revealed to be a black man toward the end of the movie. And we don't have a ton of black slasher villains, so this is rare. So I like this. But I also like this because of the whole organ donor waiting list part of the backstory. It works in some surprising social commentary as the black community has the highest ratio of patients waiting for an organ transplant. I'm going to go with a seven on appearance, actually, due to that aspect of it. So a seven score for appearance. All right. Kills. Charles, he uses a pretty decent variety of weapons here. We see him use a machete, a bear trap. He's booby trapped the woods and his lair. So with one of the bear traps, it traps the victims. And then a big bed of spikes will drop down from the tree above to spike the person to death. We also see an axe and a target in the woods. So he's used those. We don't get to see him use those, though. He hits a person with a car at one point. But as far as weapons go, he's getting docked for a couple of reasons here. One, he uses a shotgun too much. He uses it for his only real kill early in the movie, and it's a shotgun blast. So if you're a slasher, you need to be creative with a gun, not just firing it. But the second reason, which ties into the gun use, Charles is a terrible shot. He's like Russell Westbrook out there, or like a Bond villain. He can't hit anything. Uh, but now he might not want to damage any organs, and I get that. But like he can't hit the broadside of a barn in this one. I'm going to give him a four here on kills. Good variety, but too much, too much gun usage for that. Finally, though, victims. Oh, and I should mention with the kills, the gore wasn't very good either. Uh, Victims. Every slasher has to have a group of victims that either you need to be rooting for or rooting against. And I found it kind of hard to care about the characters in Stoker Hills either one way or the other. I mean, they're college students, film students at that. So they're going to be kind of irritating. But I didn't get to I didn't want to see them die or or really live. Um, The police are the other groups of uh, is the other group of victims in this. They're kind of goofy, hard-boiled types, and they say silly things like, it's hard having faith in a profession like this. Um, I'm also trying really hard not to give away the ending of this movie, especially when it comes to the victims, because they play a major role in the ending. So I'm judging them how, by how they react throughout most of the movie, and I'm also I'm going to give them a four on this as well. So let's add this up. We have got an eight for backstory, a five for motive, a seven for appearance, a four for kills and a four, for victims. So Charles Moyer, our first slasher in slasher search 2022 gets a grand total of 28 points. Did I add that right out of a possible 50? Uh, if I didn't add it right, I'll go back through and fix it later. Um, not great, but not a total failure either. Well, I, i mean i guess he kind of is i don't know i went to public school so there you go so we're gonna keep doing this throughout 2022 i'm gonna to try to keep up with as many slasher movies as i can find and at the end of the year we're gonna see where we stand but let's get back to the honor roll is this on the honor roll no um it is not i didn't dislike it though other than the ending it makes some odd choices throughout and the lack of kills kind of held it back for me but i wouldn't have I kind of like Charles Moyer, and I wouldn't be opposed to seeing him in a more straightforward slasher movie. I kind of dug him as a villain. All right, let's do a quick one. Uh, the Wasteland, also known as The Beast or El Paramo. On Netflix in America, at least, it's called The Wasteland. So we're sticking with that. Directed by David Kastem, Munt, written by Munt, Marty Lucas, Fran Manchon, starring Inma Cuesta Suesta. I'm going to go Suesta, Roberto Alamo and Asier Flores. I did not like The Wasteland very much. It is very slow. It is very heavy on mood and atmosphere, but very light on things happening. It mostly seems the plot seems to revolve around getting a young child to kill a bunny. And I will not spoil it for you, whether he does kill the bunny or not. You can go to Wikipedia for that if you want. I will not tell you. The movie looks fantastic, though. So if that's your thing, you may find more value here than I did. On the visual side of things, it's got a candlelit quality that makes it feel kind of like reading a storybook. So that's pretty cool. It does also add to that atmosphere that I talked about and mentioned earlier. So if you are more into mood and atmosphere, this might be for you. It wasn't for me, though. Ah, uh, the main trio of performances is also quite strong. They're all—they're almost good enough to make up for some like baffling decisions that they make. Uh, that the characters make. Um, I'm not really a stickler for that kind of stuff, anyway. But what I am a stickler for, and anybody who has listened to this before has no know, knows this. I'm stickler for things happening in a movie. I like when things happen, and this movie is going for mood, and I get that. And I think at times it works, but with a slow burn like this, you run the risk of being repetitive. And I think that this movie crosses that line into repetitive. Um, Also, with a slow burn, it is very important to deliver in the final act. And when you add in the fact that this is a creature feature on top of all this, this movie doesn't deliver in the final act. It doesn't deliver with the creature either um it's more of a study study in isolation and paranoia and i get that but the monster in this movie it, it also might not even exist and it call it all be in their heads but it does show the monster at one point oh i, I just got an email um it does show the uh monster I, I should look at that later it does show the monster at one point and it's it's pretty underwhelming and so i didn't like it don't want to spend too much time on movies. I didn't like unless I like really hate them. So this one just didn't engage me enough either way. Uh, so I didn't love it. Didn't hate it. Um, it's not on the honor roll though. Next up. See for me directed by Randall Okita written by Adam York and Tommy Gushu starring Skylar Davenport, Natalie Brown and the phenomenal great Kim Coates, when blind former skier Sophie cat sits in a secluded mansion. Three thieves invade for the hidden safe inside. Sophie's only defense is army veteran. Kelly Kelly helps Sophie defend herself against the invaders to survive. This movie. See for me is very much in line with some of the more recent horror movies we've seen with main characters that have disabilities. I'm talking about movies like hush. Don't breathe a quiet place. It's probably most similar to hush though with the home invasion aspect of it. I also think it's similar in scope and pacing as well. I'll get into that a little bit more later. The lead in C for me, Skylar Davenport, is actually visually impaired. Davenport is legally blind due to a stroke and a rare neurological condition. Davenport is really good here. And it's important because it's the type of movie that rests heavily on a lead performance and also features a lead character that can be a little bit abrasive early on. And the audience needs to kind of stick with them as they grow. I like this movie. It's the type of movie that's very much in my wheelhouse. though. it's a small story, pretty straightforward. It does get a little twisty in the second half, but for the most part, it follows the journey of our main character, both internally and externally. And it's all about the character's growth as a person, becoming less stubborn, learning to rely on others, learning trust. I do think it gets a little heavy handed with those themes toward the end. And it's a little bit repetitive with what it's saying as well. Like we get it. Sophie needs to learn that it's okay to ask for help. Understood. I also think that some of the supporting cast isn't well developed, but for the most part, they are static characters anyway. I think the one that gets short shafted a little bit though, is Jessica Parker Kennedy's character, Kelly Kelly is the Sergeant Powell to Sophie's John McClain, And I would have liked to have learned a little bit more about her because I feel as if the movie wanted Kelly to have a simultaneous arc with Sophie but I don't think it's successful and that Kelly kind of floats in and out of the picture to the point where she almost feels like a cheat. But I do think the movie overcomes those issues, for me at least, mainly due to its handling of structure and pacing. I think that C for me is a great example of how to pace a movie like this, which is a smaller character-based thriller. I talk a lot about pacing. I, it's thrown a lot thrown around a lot in reviews as well i don't feel like i do a good enough job of explaining why pacing and structure are so important to me especially when it comes to keeping me engaged so i'm gonna dive into that real quick and then i'm gonna walk through the plot of see for me beat by beat so beware of spoilers ahead I think most people are familiar with the three act structure of storytelling. Act one is the setup where you have your exposition, your inciting incident, all that. Act two is the confrontation. And act three, of course, is the resolution. There is also, of course, the five act structure exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement. The way I think about structure when watching movies is closer to that five act structure. And I tend to use the scriptlab.com for this it's called the five key moments and i'm going to walk through these five key moments that they use to kind of break down scripts to give you an idea of what i'm talking about key moment 1 is the inciting incident. We've met the players, been introduced to the world, but this is the incident in your story. That's going to create the tension moving forward. When it comes to filmmaking, there's also something called the 17 minute rule, which says that you, the inciting incident should happen around 17 pages into a script or 17 minutes into the movie. This is more of a guideline than a rule, but it's a reminder not to waste too much time getting to the point when the story you are going to tell really kicks in. I think the Rocky sequels are a pretty good example of structure, particularly three and four, actually. So I'm going to refer to what the script ha- script lab has highlighted as the five key moments from Rocky four, as I go through these. So a uh, spoiler warning for Rocky four as well, but we are 10 minutes into Rocky four when Apollo Creed is sitting by the pool and he hears that Yvonne Drago is looking for a fight with Rocky. So boom, there we go. That's the moment that will drive everything moving forward. That's the inciting incident. Key moment two is the lock-in. This is when our protagonist is locked into the predicament, central to the main story. This also signifies the end of act one and propels the story toward the main objective in act two. So in Rocky IV, the lock-in is the press conference between Creed and Drago, where they depart for their exhibition fight in Las Vegas. Rocky, our protagonist, is also there, so he is locked in as well. Key moment three is the first culmination. Essentially, this is the midpoint of the second act and the second highest or lowest point in act two, the second hardest objective to overcome. In Rocky four, this is the death of Apollo and Rocky deciding to challenge Drago in Moscow. The decision for Rocky to overcome his self-doubt and challenge Drago is the second highest hurdle behind the actual fight key moment four is the main culmination in the end of act two this brings the main tension to a close and creates the new tension for act three in rocky four this is the simultaneous training montages rocky four is doing his old school training just lifting things and running in the snow and drag and i'm going to pronounce his name correctly here And Drago is taking steroids and training with high-tech equipment. Both of our fighters are now ready for the big fight, which is Act 3, and the new tension for that act, which is, can Rocky's training overcome Drago's? And finally, key moment 5 is the third act twist. This is an unexpected moment during the third act that keeps the audience on their toes. Keeps things from becoming too predictable. It also can be the last true test of our hero. In Rocky Four, that twist is the crowd cheering for Rocky going into the final round. It's unexpected for the audience. It's unexpected for Rocky. And it propels him into the last true test, which is the final round with Drago. So there we go. Those are the five key moments. All of these happen in 90 minutes in Rocky IV, by the way, and it's in those 90 minutes that we get a full story of Rocky overcoming self-doubt, the death of his friends, and a fight with a roided-up Russian. Now, I am going to apply these five key moments to see for me, to highlight why I think structure is so important to pacing a small thriller like this. So, big time spoiler warning from here on out. Let's start with the inciting incident. The inciting incident is Deborah leaving for vacation and leaving Sophie alone to watch her house. By this point, we've met Sophie, we know that she's blind, we know that she's a skier, and we know that she steals wine from the homeowners that she house sits to resell for cash. This is the introduction to the house, though, and where Deborah, the house owner, mentions her ex-husband as well, who will come into play later on. It's also where our main character is on their own now. The rest of the movie cannot happen if Deborah, the owner of the house, is there And this happens about 10 minutes into the movie. So no time is wasted here to get to the inciting incident. Major moment two is the lock-in. And this is the arrival of the criminals to break into Deborah's house. This happens around 28 minutes into the movie, and it marks the end of the introduction to the story's main players as we've met Also met Kelly from the See For Me app after Sophie locks herself out of the house. This is the end of Act 1. This propels Sophie into Act 2 because she's not just cat sitting anymore. There's a new problem to deal with. Boom. End of Act 1. Key moment 3 is the first culmination. I'm going to say the first culmination in See For Me is where the criminals discover that Sophie is in the house with them. This is a critical moment because it leads to the death of the police officer who will come to visit later. But it also plants a seed of doubt in the viewer's mind with Sophie because she agrees to work with the criminals here as they find her. It's not the highest hurdle, though. So that will come later. But everything kind of stems from this moment moving forward into main culmination act four. this is the creation of of new tension for act three. So I am going to go with, this is when Sophie's phone dies about an hour and 12 minutes into the movie as the main culmination of act two, the third act, is usually the shortest in any movie, and if we break it up here, we've got about 17 minutes left in the movie, so that makes sense. But the phone dying marks the end of Act 2 because Sophie is now once again on her own, and she can't rely on the help of Kelly and the See for me app moving forward. She's learned to trust others in Act 2, so the new tension heading into Act 3 is how she's going to get out of the house now that she's on her own. And finally, the third act twist. This is the arrival of Kim Coates and him offering her a cut of the money hidden in the house. The movie is almost over. His crew has been dispatched. It's just the two of them in the house. This is unexpected also because it's the last true test of our protagonist because we need to know if she is going to turn down the money that he offers her or not. This is the moment where everything Sophie has learned over the course of the movie hangs in the balance. And we're not 100% sure either because we've watched her do some pretty shady things so far. So there you go. She turns it down, by the way. She's grown. She's ready to take the next step in her journey, which we see in the movie's final scene. Boom, 90 minutes. And the other thing I should mention too is each of these key five moments builds builds on each one When it comes to creating tension, each one is more tense than the next one, and it builds nicely. Um, The journey of Sophie is complete, both internally and externally. So there you go. Solid thriller. See for me, I think it's, I don't think it's perfect, but it's the first movie on the honor roll. I liked it. So see for me, the first movie of 2022 to make it on the honor roll. All right, let's do another quick one. Hotel Poseidon. Written, directed by Stefan Lernos, and starring Tom Vermeer, Ruth Bequart, and Aniky Sluigtes. Belgian name, not good at pronouncing Belgian names, or any names, really. Dave reluctantly pretends to be the manager of Hotel Poseidon. Such a lovely place where fungus covers the walls and comments such as faded glory and has seen better times completely fall short to describe this establishment. He wanders the corridors of his own personal overlook hotel like a zombie, being a passive spectator to what happens around him. This is a Belgian movie. I've never been to Belgium. My brother has. I'll ask him about it. I don't know a ton about Belgium, to be completely honest. I know they like their beer. I know they like their chocolates. And of course, I know the most important thing to come out of Belgium, Brussels, Brussels, to be exact the muscle from brussels one mr jean claude van damme jcvd though he's not in this movie i don't think he would be completely out of place Though he wouldn't be miscast because this is more of an absurdist comedy which is also according to my quick google search for belgian humor um that's a trademark belgian humor tends to be offbeat quirky and silly and some of jean claude's later career work fits along that hotel poseidon does have its moments of horror though Uh, The IMDb IMDb description that I just read off about the own personal overlook. um, That's yeah, that's in here. It's all presented in a very dry, strange kind of like dreamlike way. Obviously, with the hotel setting, it's going for the shining. But it also recalls more surrealist avant-garde works from like Fellini. Delicatessen is another one. The movie that kept running through my head while watching this movie, though, was Delamorte Delamore. Or Cemetery Man. Both are surrealist workplace horror movies. Both follow a main character as he descends into his own world of madness. Both movies also follow their own dreamlike logic. Cemetery Man has Nagi, though. And of course... Anna so it's the better movie I liked Hotel Poseidon, it's not plot heavy, but for the most part I jived with its weirdness, I found a lot of the weirdness amusing and not grating too, which is important there's some really great set design as well the Hotel Poseidon itself becomes a character and it needs to be in a movie like this because it, it does need to be a main character it does have it, it, like an aquatic dream-like quality to it as well, one last comparison before I move on here, it, it reminded me of a, like the movie itself, like scenes in it remind me of the waiting room scene in Beetlejuice for whatever reason I hesitate to use Burton as a comparison because his movies are kind of like calculated quirk in some ways. But you can tell this movie draws inspiration from a lot of the same places he does. It has a cartoonish, gothic quality to it. And that's that's cool um, to enjoy a movie like this. You've got to get lost in the atmosphere because, as I mentioned, if you're looking for a story, Hotel Poseidon ain't it. Um, but it was a trippy place to stay for 90 minutes. A couple more things before I move on here. This is on the Arrow streaming service Arrow they offer a free trial trial. You can check it out yourself. I'm not going to say anymore more because uh, like, they're not advertisers, advertiser, but, uh, but if you want to check it out, you can for free or, and if you have multiple emails, go nuts until you can't anymore. Also, one more thing. I made it through this entire short review of this weird surrealist horror movie without once saying the word Lynchian. Take note. It can be done reviewers. Uh, this isn't on the honor roll, but if you're in the mood for some weirdness, I think you might dig it. I dug it, but uh, it, it's, I didn't like it enough that I think it will make the top, my top 10 list at the end of the year. But if you're in the mood for weirdness, it might hit the spot. All right, let's finish this bad boy off with Amityville uprising, Amityville uprising written and directed by Thomas J. Churchill starring Mike Ferguson, Cole Benfield and Michael Cervantes, a chemical blast at a military base sets off a supernatural disaster in this tense action thriller. I did not write this. This is taken from IMDb. I'll just have you know. As Sergeant Dash tries to keep the peace at the local police station, the explosion unleashes a toxic acid rain. And boy, does it. There's a lot of toxic acid rain in this movie. The poster has the two two of the main characters trapped inside of a police station. One's got a gun. The other's got like, like uh, Negan, I think is his name from Walking Dead. I'm not a viewer, um, but I know Negan, Jeffrey D. Morgan. It's got the spikes and everything. And then it has zombie hands on the window outside. And the tagline says to serve, to protect, and to fight the undead. So the fine people at Action House and Churchill Productions, they are selling this as a zombie siege movie. Kind of like Assault on Precinct 13 meets Walking Dead. But it takes place in Amityville. This is an Amityville movie. Kind of. The 30th Amityville, 30th? movie with the name Amityville. I think it's like in the 38th. (laughs) Um, It takes place in Amityville, but the town doesn't play a huge role outside of one character. At one point goes, just had to come to Amityville and get some drama. Uh, So it's not based on the murders, the Amityville murders at all. It's not about ghosts. I think this is the only one that has zombies in it. The only Amityville movie that has zombies in it. I'm not hundred percent sure on that because I didn't feel like double checking Thomas Churchill, the writer and director of this one, he's done a couple of these as well. He also wrote and directed the Amityville harvest, which looks like it's more of a supernatural haunted mansion style movie. And he released a movie called the Amityville moon, which is a werewolf movie in Amityville. So Thomas is really trying to tell new stories in the Amityville universe, or maybe he's just slapping the Amityville name on his movies because he knows that he can sell them to rubes like me who have a ton of free time so either way it works anyway this is sold as a zombie movie like i mentioned with the poster and it kind of is but it's more of an acid rain movie it's like it's like an amityville eco horror movie the acid rain will like melt people and then turn them into zombies don't Ask me how this works. Ask the filmmakers, email them, find their contact information. If you want, i have no idea uh, because it's never properly explained in the movie, which is fine. I don't care. And also because the characters wouldn't know what's going on either. So we're in the same boat as them throughout most of the movie. So I think it's strategic is what I'm saying. Uh, The movie is mostly just people saying acid rain a bunch and don't go outside. So I laughed a lot at this movie. We're going to count down the top five lines of dialogue. In Amityville Uprising, I may provide some context for these, but most of them work better without it. So here we go. Um, And I've got to give me a second. I've got to get myself together here because I'm going to try to uh, react or act them, reenact them, I should say. Um, Let's start with number five. Hey, the news said the explosion this morning was causing weather to be a bit screwy and to expect acid rain. (laughs) Uh, so what are the, the diner waitresses says? I the police officer about that. That's number five. Number four. That's right. The rain is deadly. We are officially code red. Do not leave your homes for any reasons. Do not leave your homes. Number three. I'll tell you this. She's definitely not vegan. So this I'll context here. Uh, a vegan cop is now a zombie and it bites one of the other people. So that's why he says she's not a vegan. I laughed at this. I'm not going to lie. I thought that was legit funny. Number two, looking at this woman's face, I would say the rain has turned into a highly corrosive form of hydro. (laughs) Sorry. Let's restart this. Looking at this woman's face, I would say the rain has turned into a highly corrosive form of hydrochloric acid. (laughs) Sorry. That's Very funny to me. I don't know why. Because you have to see her face as well because it's melted like crazy. And finally, my favorite line of dialogue from Amityville Uprising is, I know I missed some life events, but it was always because of work. The police officer says to his son to comfort him. (laughs) Sorry, son. I know I missed your graduation, but I was wrangling up the Amityville drunks that night. Eh? can't be everywhere. So I'm going to spoil this movie real quick. So turn back now, if you don't want to hear it, here's how this movie ends. There's a bit of family drama throughout the son has a, he's a police officer father. He has a police officer father. The son does. Um, the father has ignored him pretty much his whole life. He comes to hang out with his dad because nobody else will have him that day. And also because the son is like 20 something years old. He could go out, he could go get, I mean, he go see a movie. By himself, maybe call up a friend. I don't know. Um, but he j- decides to hang out with his dad at his police station. So, anyway, the father finally decides at the end, once the acid rain zombies have taken over the station, that he wants to hang out with his grown adult son. Maybe toss the ball around in the front yard once the deadly acid rain clears up. So, the dad goes to find him after forgetting for him for like a good 20 minutes of screen time and God knows how long in like real time. Uh, this all takes place in one night. So, I guess it's not the entire night, but. When he gets to him, when the officer gets to his son, finally, he finally remembers him, finds him. Uh, the son is being torn apart by zombies. He's, di- he's just being ripped apart. And it's so funny. And so the police officer, dad, his life is now in shambles. He's a complete failure as a dad and a cop. So he just falls to his knees and he bellows to the heavens as zombies break into the station. They rush in and they overtake him and then they kill him, too. So that's how the movie ends. Very bleak. Very funny, honorable. No, but I didn't hate it. I don't know. It's kind of funny. It made me laugh. Uh, this will definitely be on Tubi someday. So check it out there. Wait, check it out there if you want. I'm not. I don't. I'm not going to tell people what to do with their time. All right, let's wrap this up. What have we got here? Where did we start? It's been a long episode. I usually, uh, moving forward, I, I will try to keep these two around less than 30 minutes, but uh, this one ran a little long. Stoker Hills, not on the honor roll. Didn't hate it, though. It was fine. Wasteland on Netflix now, but not on the honor roll, unfortunately. Uh, kind of dull. See for Me. I like the solid little thriller. You can rent this now, um, and I'm sure it'll be on one of the streaming services at some point, but it's, uh, it's a rental in theaters, I think, as well. Hotel Poseidon on the Arrow streaming service. You can check that out. Uh, I like this, not on the honor roll, but um, weird enough to be enjoyable. And finally, Amityville Uprising, the zombie acid rain movie, not on the honor roll, but I enjoyed my time. (laughs) I can't lie. I will never lie to you all. On this podcast. There you go. Wrap this up. Patreon.com backslash Midwest podnet. If you want to check it out, check out our new episodes. We're covering scream this week. We'll have a tiny terror out the week after it's going to be a lot of fun. We're getting back into like swing of things here in 2022, the game nerds. I'm sure I've got some cool stuff. They just wrapped up a look forward to the year of 2022, all sorts of cool stuff coming down the pipe from Midwest podcast network. So there you go. We'll be back next time. Seriously. Thank you everybody for listening. Stay safe out there. Uh, be nice to one, each other, one another, all that good stuff. But yes, thank you for listening. Take care.